Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Newman is in Wichita, Kansas, where I've lived for, oh, 20 years or so. And when I moved out to Wichita, I was a little bit surprised to find out that people in Wichita think of themselves as living in the Midwest. In fact, of course, at least for most of American history, this was the West, or at least the gateway to it. And... I've been surprised to find out that I actually know precious little about what people in the United States often called the Indian Wars, which happened at least a little bit, not that far away from Wichita. So I'm greatly looking forward to talking with Edward Westerman today. Ed teaches history at Texas A&M at San Antonio. He's by training an expert in military history, and particularly European history, and is the author of a well-regarded book on the German police battalions on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. In his new book, he turns his attention to comparative history, Hitler's Ostkrieg and the Indian Wars, Comparing Genocide and Conquest, was published by Oklahoma University Press in 2016. It examines the Holocaust and the conflicts in the American West in the 19th century to see what we can learn about these conflicts in particular, and more generally, about genocide as a phenomenon. It's a book full of careful analysis and thoughtful discussion, and I have to say I learned a lot from it, uh, especially about the conflicts in my own region. Looking forward to digging into the discussion with Ed. And so with that, Ed, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you, Kelly. It's an, uh, glad to be here and have the opportunity to talk about the project. So I always start by um, asking people to say a little bit about their background. And, and, and so maybe you can say a little bit about who you are and, and how you became an academic. Yeah, Kelly, I definitely did not have uh, what would be the typical uh, <laughs> academic background. I, uh, I graduated from the Air Force Academy, and I was a history major there, mm-hmm. uh, but I ended up uh, actually becoming a pilot in the Air Force and mm-hmm. uh, spent about 25 years uh, in the Air Force. But uh, fortunately, uh, I was able to uh, actually get uh, two graduate degrees, a master's degree at Florida State Mm -hmm. and my Ph.D. at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, And along the way, uh, the Air Force let me go do a Fulbright uh, fellowship in Berlin and some some research grants uh, I was able to take in Germany and at the Holocaust Museum. Mm -hmm. So uh, history for me has always been my passion. Uh, and uh, it's always been something I've uh, I, I felt very strongly about. So as uh, when I actually retired from the military, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, get a job at Texas A&M San Antonio, as you mentioned, uh, and it really enjoyed teaching uh, uh, there as well. You, you said you got your degree at, at North Carolina, and I know from talking to you just a moment ago that, that you worked with Dick Cohn and, and, and Gerhard Weinberg there. Those are real giants in the field of military history. Can, can you say something about your experience working with them? Yeah, well, I, I guess what I'd said is it, I, had, uh, I had Alex Rowland from Duke, Dan oh Biddle from Duke, uh, 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 Melissa Bullard from UNC, Conrad Yarosh, and as you said, Gerhard uh, Weinberg and... Uh, 
Dick Cohn. I always make the joke it took uh, six of the best minds <laughs> in the world to get me through a PhD program. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, but uh, obviously one of the things that you learn at a program like that with the resources that are available there uh, is it sharpens your ability uh, as a young academic to think about history, uh, to think about the interrelationships of mm -hmm. history. Methodological diversity is something else you get out of that type of program. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I was a dual uh, major in terms of European history and military history, mm -hmm. both. And so um, I think some of that broadness uh, that you get uh, in exploring other uh, disciplines within the historical discipline, sub-disciplines, uh, gives you greater insight into your own, uh, into your own discipline. And, that's kind of what I very much found in doing the comparative work mm -hmm. uh, on the American West and the and the Nazi East as well. That uh, the reciprocal insights uh, that you get uh, from looking at other periods of history and other times is really uh, intellectually uh, very satisfying mm -hmm. and challenging in many respects as well. So, did you always uh, did you intend from entering grad school to to do work on mass atrocities, or did you kind of evolved to that point? Well, I, uh, what happened was I was an exchange pilot with the German Air Force for oh, three wow. years. So uh, I went to language school, and uh, when I, uh, at the end of that three-year period, uh, I had wanted to go back and uh, teach uh, at the Air Force Academy, so mm -hmm. they sponsored me uh, for my first degree, and I ended up at Florida State, uh, uh, actually, with Alan Steinweiss, who's mm -hmm. now at the University of Vermont, as the Hilberg uh, uh, Endowed Professor there. But uh, Alan, uh, as a German historian who'd also gone to UNC and worked with Gerhard uh, uh, there, had uh, talked to me about, well, what is it you want to do? And initially, I thought something about um, uh, military history uh, in general, German uh, military history, to take advantage of the language background. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at the police, and this was before Chris Browning's book came out, mm -hmm. and as it turned out, that uh, uh, the more I started looking at the police, the more I saw not, uh, in uh, contrast to like the SS that, that typically people know about the Gestapo, just ordinary policemen were uh, were involved in genocide and genocidal actions and uh, conquest in the East. And so that kind of took off uh, from there. My interest uh, in, uh, in, in the Holocaust actually mm -hmm. grew out of that. Mm -hmm. and just kind of kept expanding over the next uh, two and a half decades. So why the American West? Why choose that as, as a companion piece to the Holocaust for this book? Well, what I was struck by uh, is in the book, as, uh, as you remember, uh, Hitler at different times, at varying times, yeah. made this comparison himself about that his conquest uh, in the East uh, was uh, essentially... Uh, a, a template for what had been done in the American West. And I always found uh, that that comment interesting because uh, Hitler uh, read a lot, but he was not what we would call intellectual, and he mm -hmm. borrowed uh, the great majority of his ideas uh, from others. And uh, when, when it comes to uh, Western history, Karl uh, uh, May, uh, obviously the winner mm -hmm. to uh, 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 series was Hitler was an avid reader of uh, of that, and I knew that, uh, and so I started to think, well, how much did how how much did Hitler really know about the American West? How appropriate uh, is that uh, comparison? And in talking to some of my colleagues within the field of Holocaust uh, studies, we often, you know, uh, students have students in the classroom who make these comparisons, 
And so uh, what was interesting to me is to go ahead and explore that comparison really at the empirical level uh, mm -hmm. in a way that would allow me uh, to satisfy my own uh, intellectual mm -hmm. curiosity, but also to be able to engage with the students in the classroom. Uh, and the complexity of these stories, I think, for me, is what's, uh, what's also very interesting. So, so I thought that, that in looking at this book, um, my guess is that people are less familiar with the Indian Wars of the West than they are with the Holocaust. And, and, and so let's start talking with that. And first a note about terminology. I'm, I'm using the, the terminology you've used in the book, and just, just to be clear to everybody, and I think that makes sense. Uh, and so we'll talk about Indians and the Indian Wars, and we will talk about Americans in America as the United States and citizens of that. Uh, I know that I've been taken to task occasionally by foreign students in South America who complain about my use of Americans, and perhaps rightly so. So for this, just laying out for ease of use, we'll use those two terms. And to start the discussion, you talk about the idea of, of manifest destiny, of, uh, uh, serving as a framing narrative for American expansion. Um, for those people who are not familiar with this, um, what is this idea and, and why did it emerge and, and what is the kind of imagined goal of this manifest destiny? Yeah, and uh, if I could, just to yeah, back please. up, a, 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 the way that I wanted to do the comparison, and, and I think this starts, mm -hmm. uh, this will get, I'll, I'll fall back on your, uh, your, your original question, just by explaining, in doing the comparison, I felt I needed a structure uh, to, to understand mm -hmm. this comparison. So the way I built that structure was to start with national philosophies mm -hmm. uh, of conquest, and in the case of Manifest Destiny for the United States, certainly... Uh, was one for uh, for Nazi Germany, Lebensraum or mm -hmm. living space uh, mm -hmm. was the other. The, uh, the the second part of that structure was national policies mm -hmm. of race and space. So looking at the role of government and non-governmental agencies uh, in these processes. Uh, the the third uh, the third part of this was military strategies mm -hmm. in both areas. Uh, then uh, the, uh, the fourth uh, chapter looks at massacre and atrocity and the way it's used in uh, both areas. And then finally, the, the last chapter looks at what would be guerrilla war in the U.S. Southwest, uh, New Mexico Territory, Arizona Territory, and the anti-partisan war in the East. So having said that, that was the way I was going to try to conduct an empirical, mm -hmm. an empirical study. Uh, now, getting back to Manifest Destiny as an overall uh, overarching national philosophy. Certainly it's understood uh, in, in the 1840s is the idea that America, the United States, needs to be a coast-to-coast -coast empire. So in fact, when we're talking about Oregon Territory, when we're talking about uh, Texas, when we talk about the uh, Mexican-American War uh, and uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which mm -hmm. uh, essentially uh, uh, creates this enormous new western territory that's now part of the United States, the idea that there's a messianic type of view uh, that, uh, that the United States needs to expand from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast, uh, and uh, in that messianic view that Zeitgeist or the spirit of the times at that time sees it as a civilizing, Christian, uh, Christianizing uh, kind of philosophy that is going to bring light to the darkness, literally. And those who are familiar with uh, uh, with a gas picture of uh, uh, of Columbia stri uh, literally striding in the light to mm -hmm. bring light and knowledge to the West, it kind of defines uh, manifest destiny at least in that period. Uh, 
Uh, one of the points that I would make about Manifest Destiny, however, is it's an amorphous, in some cases plastic, uh, uh, type of term because it's redefined, because it's around for so long. Mm -hmm. We see it being used in the, uh, in the 1840s, but you also uh, see it being used by President McKinley as late as 1898 in the war with Spain. So, uh, it's one of those. Uh, it's one of those concepts that justifies conquest, and it justifies conquest in an almost messianic uh, type of uh, 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 viewpoint. Is what I would say. Mm -hmm. So you said bring light to the West. How do the Indians fit into this picture? Well, and this is you know this is what's very interesting uh, uh, because what you what what we have is uh, you have. Established cultures, you have obviously numerous tribes. If we go, uh, if, if we think about the prehistory of the Americas, right? Yeah. We're talking about civilizations, the Pueblo civilizations, for example, in New Mexico, that are among the preeminent civilizations, uh, ancient civilizations uh, in, in the uh, in in the world, in fact. And so, what you have is you have a you have a a at least a belief amongst many. Uh, that the West is an underutilized virgin land mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is not being actually uh, taken full advantage of by the native, uh, the native tribes, and that is part of what justifies uh, this uh, spoliation, uh, this mm -hmm. expropriation of mm -hmm. these lands on the part of settlers uh, in, uh, in many respects. You have miners, frontiersmen, eventually farmers, so that this West is seen as the great if you will, the great frontier, the golden land uh, that uh, that the United States and uh, and its population can expand into. Yeah, I was really interested. You you, you referenced Karl May earlier uh, in the kind of wet novels about the West that he writes for a for a German audience. But I was really intrigued by the the discussion you had about where Americans found out about the West and the idea that they learned about them certainly from newspapers, but also from novels and traveling shows. Yeah, one of the most interesting uh, uh, areas that I, in, in looking at one of the things I wanted to try to do in both cases was to see how is the idea these imagined areas because the West and the Nazi mm -hmm. East are very much imagined areas, uh, and uh, what I want to see how is that idea of an imagined area sold uh, to uh, uh, to the American public? How is it propagated uh, in the dime novels, which are actually come out of this period? Uh, which was to me very fascinating to say what we would consider graphic novels, mm -hmm. uh, 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 similar uh, in, in respect to that, but they're used as kind of this popular culture to create this picture uh, of, if you will, uh, adventure, mm -hmm. uh, uh, masculinity, uh, and, uh, 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 and the idea that you have uh, these individuals who go into this wild, untamed area by uh, by the standards of the books, and they do they do great deeds to, in other words, enrich themselves, but also enrich the areas. And um, it gets to this feeling of how people imagine and create ideas of these areas mm -hmm. themselves. And in that case. Uh, you have propaganda works both ways in terms of depictions of Native Americans and Native tribes and 
And James Fenimore Cooper, obviously, is uh, uh, this idea of the noble savage, but you also see the idea of the so-called ignoble savage. Mm -hmm. And you see uh, you also see racial stereotyping of other groups to include Mexicans in, in, in this uh, in this in in, uh, in this literature. But it, it's creating it's creating a sense of uh, at least trying to create a sense of understanding that people can relate to the mm -hmm. West from a frame of their reference, mm -hmm. even to those who will never travel there. And uh, that to me was uh, that to me was fascinating, along with uh, uh, Buffalo Bill's uh, uh, exhibition, which again for many people and Europeans, quite frankly, because it travels internationally, becomes emblematic of the West. And uh, obviously, it's a fiction mm -hmm. uh, in, in many respects of the West. But those fictions be become the uh, realities that at least people at the time period accept. So, in the Nazi case, it seems to me at at some point in time that kind of the the way in which these ideas spread changed from bottom up to top down, um, or at least the, the the distribution between those two changed pretty significantly. I don't. I don't get the sense that that ever really happened in the United States. Yeah, yeah. The one of the uh, one of the key distinctions, I think, and I think the way you uh, the way you worded it is a good one. The top down. If we look at the Nazi East, we have a, a racial based ideology that sees the East uh, as an area of not only opportunity, economic opportunity, uh, but also. Uh, as an area of, uh, if you will, racial danger to the state. Uh, and that prescribes the actions in many cases uh, of something we'll talk about later. In the West, it's a little, uh, there's the economic aspect drives certainly the expropriation. And uh, uh, that economic aspect is playing uh, by settlers moving in, by miners moving in, uh, by farmers and ranchers moving in and expropriating, uh, uh, expropriating this property. And one of the interesting dynamics uh, that I talk about uh, in my mind in the book is there's a discussion between the role of the center and the periphery. And when I, when I discuss that, what I mean is the center would be uh, what we would consider to be the decision-making political center. In the United States, that would be the East Coast, Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., but also the media uh, uh, markets of uh, New York and Boston could be included in that. Uh, and the periphery would be the frontier itself. Uh, and when you look at the dynamic uh, of, uh, of what's going on, it's very interesting uh, to see that uh, during the Civil War period, we, we saw a sectional divide that was north-south, and especially in print, so newspapers uh, 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 kind of become the war of words before the actual war itself uh, uh, is played out there. In the West, you see a similar dynamic where it's now an east-west uh, sectional dynamic where um, those on the East Coast, uh, uh, in many cases, you have uh, reform groups that support uh, that support uh, the, the tribes, support them in terms of wanting them to be assimilated, Christianized, uh, and uh, become like, if you will, white society. And then you have in the West, you have another dynamic of, the, of those who are on the frontier who are actively engaged in uh, expropriation and taking, and taking uh, possession of that land who talk about things like extermination, who uh, who advocate uh, who advocate uh, for extreme measures uh, with respect to the various tribes in various areas, and so you have a very interesting 
periphery is trying to drive the policy, but in fact, uh, in in the American West, uh, the East Coast, the political uh, decision-making center, is often a break uh, to those types of policies. And if we were to switch and think about Nazi Germany, it's very interesting. The, the center in that case would be in Berlin and the periphery would be uh, on the Eastern Front. And what we see in that case, though, is that the center has clearly talked about annihilation and genocide as being the marching orders. And on the periphery, it's not a, it's, there's no competition. It's how the competition involves how to most effectively uh, uh, to achieve those goals. And so you have a radicalizing dynamic that happens in the periphery that's supported by the center. And so for me, that was one of those, um, that was one of the most interesting parts of the comparison and looking at it. My chapter then um, devoted to strategic thinking about the Indian wars and, and of course about the Nazi period. Um, and you, you mentioned a little bit that in some sense, the American objective in the West was primarily economic, although there was lots of other things going on. Um, how did they, what does that look like? Well, to, to the Americans at the time, what does a victory look like? And on a strategic level, how do they imagine achieving it? Yeah, uh, in, I, I think it's really important to, uh, to note when I, uh, when I say primarily economic, and, and this is what I think is very important uh, to stress, is that there are multi, multiple acts of atrocity, mass murder, mm -hmm. injustice uh, that, are, uh, that accompany that economic uh, uh, spoliation, that expropriation of those, uh, of those areas. But I also think it, it's, very, uh, it's very important to understand that uh, that the native tribes uh, have agency themselves, mm -hmm. and that agency is often effaced. Uh, if we look at, for example, in some of the literature that that talks about native tribes as only be, being acted upon, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, if we look at the Comanche Empire, for example, in Pekka Hamelin's Comanche Empire, uh, Brian Delay's War of a Thousand Deserts are two works that mm -hmm. look at this uh, in detail. We see that Comancheria into the 1870s really is the preeminent force on the southern plains hmm. into Texas, all the way into into Mexico, literally uh, hundreds of miles into Mexico. And so, what you see is you see a borderlands history where you have an active contestation, and there's more than simply those being acted upon and those acting. Uh, now, the way I think to answer your question as to how uh, uh, the West or settlers saw mm. this playing out would be that their end game was if the native tribes could be placed on reservations that they did not want in land that the Westerners did not want uh, and isolated there until they either assimilated or it, it, it became marginalized uh, in this case, then they would take possession uh, of that uh, of that land, and that was in their mind, I think, uh, uh, the end game, uh, if you will. That's mm -hmm. what they saw, uh, because you have these continuing waves of uh, uh, overland immigration uh, mm -hmm. into the West at different times, and obviously the Civil War is a key watershed in that period. Uh, with the Homestead Act in 1862, we're making lands; the U.S. government's making lands available. Uh, you also have now uh, continuing immigrant waves that are looking uh, to, uh, to, uh, to move and to have land. 
And so it just brings this conflict, uh, this this uh, period of what Elliot mm -hmm. West calls the greater reconstruction, which mm -hmm. involves not only the reincorporation of the American South back into the Union, but the incorporation now uh, of the uh, of the American West uh, into this national project is part is part of that. But uh, I, I do find it interesting. I talked about this in the book. Uh, the anthropologist Lawrence Keeley uh, talks about how. Uh, after expropriation takes place, once the settlers have their land, then they're willing to become nostalgic about yeah. uh, about you know Native Americans and Indian culture, right? But uh, it's only after they become marginalized and no longer represent uh, a, a threat to their interests, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a, uh, a, that's a, that's an interesting point. And again, in in terms of comparison. If we go to the uh, if we go to the Nazi East, uh, by the very nature, uh, Jews were an existential threat as defined in Nazi racial uh, racial ideology. Jews and Slavs, to a certain degree, were an existential threat uh, to Germany, uh, at least national socialists, uh, as they saw it. And so there was no accommodation. There was no area of marginalization. Uh, that uh, it was not just about taking the land, but it was also about killing and taking their lives. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. I wonder if you could say more about it because uh, you're right. You, you, it's, it's notable. You don't see, and the evidence in the book shows that this seems to be true, you don't see annihilation as an actual strategic goal of these campaigns. But there's a lot of rhetoric that sounds like it, both from settlers on the ground, but also from army officers and political... How, how do you view this rhetoric? Yeah, and, and there's 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 a uh, it's it's that's that to me is probably one of the was one of the most difficult questions mm -hmm. in, in looking at, uh, at at the project because this rhetoric is pretty ubiquitous as you point as you point out and you see it on the on the behalf of uh, uh, leading generals whether it's Sheridan Sheridan whether it's uh, uh, Phil Sheridan. Uh, whether it's uh, 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 William Tecumseh Sherman or even U.S. Grant. Um, but the idea that uh, certainly I think one of the things that you look at 19th century U.S. history, uh, the hard war of the Civil War, there's also mm -hmm. this rhetoric of annihilation with respect to the South, right? And so in terms of the use of exterminationist rhetoric, uh, it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly present it certainly presents in both uh, in both areas. Now, for me, the question is then looking at how does it look like on the ground. So, how is this rhetoric translated into actions? And what we, uh, at least what I saw in, in going uh, in going through many of these uh, uh, many of these uh, uh, discussions or these comparisons, was that rhetoric was often used, and it sometimes it's held as the most extreme whether it's a newspaper or whether it's an army mm -hmm. officer talking about this, uh, this is the most extreme thing that could happen. But then again, you see it that in reality, in practice, the idea is not to translate it to the most extreme mm -hmm. or that in many cases that uh, arguments that are proposed about extermination uh, are either countered with moral arguments or in some cases uh, uh, economic arguments. For example, mm -hmm. the Seminole Wars were the most expensive wars uh, that the United States has ever fought relative uh, uh, to, uh, to the resources at the time. And there are those who talk about extermination as being morally wrong, 
but also many who talk about as being economically unfeasible. So, you know, you get these practical arguments as well. Um, it, certainly on the, in the West, uh, the, this rhetoric of extermination, those in closest contact, those seeking to take, uh, to take uh, control of these resources are most adamant, I would argue, uh, in, 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 the use of that, uh, in the use of that rhetoric. And again, uh, again, flipping back now to uh, yeah. the Nazi East, this rhetoric that I talk about that, uh, that Nazi generals use, that, that Hitler and Nazi uh, uh, bureaucrats use, we see it's actually, if we look at on the ground, we see that those policies are translated mm -hmm. uh, into, uh, into mass annihilation, into genocide. And to me, that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, dichotomy, how rhetoric can stand, because we, I think we're all, especially academics, we're very concerned about how rhetoric shapes an environment, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a political environment, uh, uh, it's certainly one of the things we're attuned to. Uh, and then looking at why that rhetoric is or is not necessarily uh, uh, transformed, if you will, uh, into concrete actions is another, I think, interesting part of this comparison. Uh, and again, like I said, we see actions uh, that are mass atrocities, that are mass murder, and I talk about uh, I talk about those. But what tends to happen is they're used in, in terms of military strategy, pursue and punish or chastise. So the idea is, well, if we kill 200 of a, a of the Pegans uh, in 1870. Uh, an Indian tribe uh, uh, in Montana uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, on the Northern Plains, what we'll see is the idea is, well, that will serve to act as a signal to the other tribes of the area uh, not to engage in depredations, not to engage in raiding, uh, whatever the case might be here. But there's no, um, there's no plan to say, okay, what we need to do is we need to annihilate all these mm -hmm. tribes in order to uh, in order to take possession uh, of this area, uh, and uh, that to me uh, is one of the uh, is one of the things that came out of that uh, that discussion, the, the nuance or complexity of some of those discussions. Yeah, I was really interested in this that the sense in which violence, uh, and not just violence against men, but but often as directed especially at men, but also women and children, is conceived in both cases as a signaling device. In the German case, it's not conceived that way with Jews, but it might be conceived that way against the resistance in the Ukraine or uh, Belarus or, or certainly in Serbia. Um, it's, it's a kind of a rational tactic toward a rational end. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, and, I, and I think that the, your distinction there is a good one. When we do look at uh, uh, German occupation policy in the East, looking at uh, indigenous areas mm -hmm. uh, very much uh, goes between two extremes. Uh, one of the extremes uh, is uh, the so-called dead zone, creation of dead zones, which literally means in partisan areas or suspected partisan areas to go into uh, villages and towns and literally wipe out, raise the towns, mm -hmm. uh, take the livestock, take, uh, 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 take any foodstuffs, and then kill the populations. Or, uh, as you're talking about, to uh, have graduated kind of actions against local populations designed to prevent them from supporting, uh, uh, from supporting the partisans. And there's a tension uh, mm -hmm. in uh, Nazi ideology 
between those two extremes. Uh, I think what we see uh, in the uh, in the Nazi East that ultimately, because the campaign is based on this idea of racial uh, uh, racial ideas, mm-hmm. uh, that it ultimately leads to the radicalization of policy, especially uh, near the end of the war, uh, as the uh, German uh, as the German uh, front is collapsing. But there are some attempts at somewhat signaling or accommodation, as you, as you mentioned. But the underlying premise, again, uh, is that that area is going to be Germanized, which means mm-hmm. for tens of millions of uh, individuals, uh, it, 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 they're going to lose their lives. And I think that that's one of the things that when you talk about Serbia, 1.7 million yeah. uh, Serbians uh, lose their lives. And I think a lot of people don't think about those numbers in Serbia, right? A relatively small mm-hmm. area, right? But we, we start looking at Poland and it's 6 million, you know, 3 million Polish Jews, but 3 million Polish Christians or Gentiles uh, are killed in Poland. Tens of millions, right, yeah. are killed uh, in Eastern Europe. And uh, when we start to think about uh, that, the level and the, and the scale and the scope of that kind of killing, I think that that's one of, to me, that's also one of the distinctions that comes out in the comparison. Yeah, let's kind of keep teasing at this idea of massacres for a minute, because one of the things I found notable in your book is, is your description of kind of the tactical imperatives of, of war in the West and here in, in, in America, and the idea that one of the, the adaptations the army made to their fairly consistent inability to catch Indians on the move was to surround villages or to overlook villages and attack first thing in the morning to gain surprise. And the almost inevitable result of that is that you're going to be uh, killing or wounding women and children as well as combatants. Yeah, absolutely. And this is uh, this is where you see uh, where the signaling comes in. And also what you see is... Um, uh, the idea here, uh, this is where uh, a racial idea uh, uh, is also present, that somehow that this is the type, and, and I talk about the generals who see the, the only thing that native tribes really understand, the only thing the Indians mm-hmm. really understand is the firm hand, uh, yeah. uh, this level of, uh, of violence. And it is, uh, it is really uh, a tactic, if you will, in many cases of the week, because it gets back to, the, to one of the strengths Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of Indian warfare. You have these uh, large columns of U.S. Uh, cavalry and infantry and these plans for converging columns, whether it's to chase uh, Geronimo uh, in the Apache in the southwest or, uh, or to operate on the northern or southern plains. And what you see very quickly and what the Army recognizes very quickly is they can march literally for hundreds or thousands of miles mm-hmm and come away empty. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the idea is because uh, uh, because the native tribes are so much more adept at knowing the terrain, at, at recognizing uh, when these large columns are coming in, that they're able to pick and choose uh, when and how they want to engage uh, uh, the Army, the U.S. Army especially. Now, one of the interesting parts of this uh, that I talk uh, that I talk about in the book is that, uh, in fact, what the U.S. Army does to counterbalance this is it brings in numerous scouts yeah. and auxiliaries from mm-hmm. the native tribes themselves. And uh, what we have to remember is, for example, there are there is great enmity between certain mm-hmm. tribes, whether it's Ute and Navajo, for example, Comanche and a number of tribes because of the, uh, the power of the Comanche themselves, uh, but. 
uh, on the northern plains, for example, the, the Crow versus the Sioux, the Sioux versus the Shoshone. And uh, so what the U.S. Army uh, is able to do often is to take advantage of native uh, martial skills by incorporating uh, uh, these, uh, these other tribal members into the U.S. Army structure to be successful. But that might allow them, uh, for example, to be able to then uh, tactical success in uh, in actually surrounding a village, as I talk about with the Marias uh, River massacre, as I talk about uh, at Slim Buttes and some of the other mm-hmm. uh, uh, some of the other uh, uh, areas, uh, the Battle of Turret Mountain would be would, would be another one uh, in battle in quotation marks in that case. Uh, but the other thing that I would point out is uh, what what uh, Sheridan, what George Crook, these are U.S. Mm-hmm. Army generals, Nelson Miles. Uh, what they come to realize is that really because they can't capture, uh, mm-hmm. they can't capture the native tribes, if they can chase them, not only during the summer months, but if they can continue to chase these tribes uh, during the winter, what they can essentially do is they won't capture the, the, the tribe itself, but they'll capture villages. They mm-hmm. destroy the infrastructure, they destroy the supplies, uh, they destroy the teepees, the buffalo ropes, and so now what you have is you have these uh, these tribal groups that are now cut off, uh, literally, uh, from sustenance uh, and lodging during the winter, uh, and what that then facilitates is the process of driving uh, these uh, these various uh, native tribes onto the reservation where they are protected in terms of they mm-hmm. won't be uh, they won't be attacked uh, in, in those terms. So this larger there's this tactical signaling that you talked about mm-hmm. in these engagements, but there's this larger um, uh, engagement of literally uh, exhausting mm-hmm. uh, exhausting the tribes and eventually driving, uh, uh, driving the tribes onto, uh, onto the reservation, which is an, uh, an interesting dynamic because once they get to the reservation, and many times the reservations are completely unprepared mm-hmm. uh, to uh, provide the tools, the annuities, the sustenance, uh, that uh, that the tribes need, and so for many of those, and I talked about I talked about this in the book, whether it's Crazy Horse or Sitting Bull or Geronimo uh, or Victoria or whoever we're talking about, these Indian leaders uh, coming out of a martial culture, they're put in a position where they either starve on the reservation and they lose their uh, their cultural and ethnic identity, or they have to go raiding, they have to go, mm-hmm. uh, they have to. Uh, uh, assert right uh, uh, their uh, their military power in that way, and so uh, the tragedy uh, in many respects of this story uh, is um, how these uh, how these tribes and groups are not only uh, are put into this untenable situation, but that how they can know how they're not even given the tools to try to yeah. uh, create a, a, a desirable outcome, and that gets to a uh, to a great deal of tension between the uh, Army and the Interior Department, mm-hmm. which is in charge of, uh, uh, of Indian policy after 1849. So these are, again, as you point out, some of the complexities of this story uh, that, uh, in my mind, make it uh, so fascinating. Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, the Nazis briefly imagine a kind of reservation, maybe not system, but strategy, uh, and then they quickly abandon it. <laughs> Yeah, in the case of the Lublin Reservation, which is uh, obviously when they take over Poland in 1939, there are 
portions of um, Western Poland that are incorporated into the German Reich, the so-called Old Reich, but the general government is created as kind of it really itself as a giant reservation area for Poles and Jews. Mm-hmm. And within the, the general government, there's a plan that comes up, the, the Lublin Reservation, uh, which comes up as an idea. It's going to become, it's this swampy area where it's going to become a dumping ground uh, for uh, Polish Jews. And literally what's going to happen is they're going to be left there with nothing. And the idea behind that is uh, in Nazi, in, in the Nazi mentality, well, they're disease carriers anyway. This is mm-hmm. going to lead to their decimation on their own. Uh, and even in the case of where the Nazis consider the so-called Madagascar plan, which is a plan to literally transport European Jews uh, uh, off the uh, uh, off the east coast of Africa to Madagascar. So uh, the idea is not that they're just going to take Jews there and leave yeah. them there. They're going to be in a large concentration camp. So even in that case, mm-hmm. right, uh, that uh, there's uh, this idea that this isolation is also going to be an isolation that is going to lead somehow to decimation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't believe uh, in, in the reservations for all their faults, and there are many, and it depends in many cases on the Indian agents and the superintendents who are put in charge. It depends on whether Congress uh, appropriated annuities and, and they're delivered or not. Um, they were not seen. Uh, as sites of extinction uh, mm-hmm. necessarily, uh, but uh, certainly they wor- they share the idea of sites of isolation and marginalization mm-hmm. in that in those terms. The other way, so the other thing I found interesting about the idea of massacres in your book was was the sense in which, at least as I understood your your argument, many of the massacres, not all, but many of the massacres in the American West, happened or involved non professional military whether they were vigilantes or temporary soldiers or state militias, uh, these are the people who tend to, or these, these, these soldiers tend to be more extreme in their conduct in the professional military. No, that's a, that, I'm glad you brought that, uh, that point up because I think when we look at one of the things I try to do is look at who are the actors involved yeah. in, uh, in, in, in the killing in both areas. And the, the point is, um, if we look at Amy Greenberg's uh, A Wicked War, which talks about the Mexican-American War, uh, hmm. many of those forces, right, are not regular army forces. These are volunteer forces from the states, uh, even the Texas Rangers who become involved, another paramilitary mm-hmm. force, uh, if you will, uh, in the war with Mexico. And the widespread, uh, the widespread acts of atrocity that are associated mm-hmm. with volunteer and militia forces is something we already see in that war. In fact, the Texas Rangers get sent back to Texas mm-hmm. uh, uh, due to that. Uh, but what you also see in the West is uh, with Chivington, and I talked about the Sand Creek Massacre yep. in 1864, these, uh, these Colorado volunteers, uh, and uh, they're on a 100-day enlistment. Uh, and uh, uh, Governor Evans uh, uh, in the Colorado Territory says he wants to build. Uh, he wants to build this uh, uh, this volunteer uh, this volunteer uh, group, and its purpose is to kill Indians. Yeah. Now, what's interesting to me about that uh, is in 1864, uh, the regular army and the eyes of the nation are focused on the Civil War and the events there, mm-hmm. and we see that. When Western policy is left to the devices of Western uh, governors uh, and of Western groups, 
we see that these volunteers, frontiersmen, uh, are most adept and most mm-hmm. ready to employ extirpative warfare uh, as yeah. their template uh, for, uh, uh, for actions. And uh, on many cases uh, in the book, I talk about where in the West, either governors or newspapers will say, well, we don't need the U.S. Army here. What we need is we need to bring in the volunteers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the frontiersmen, because they're the ones who can most effectively deal with this threat. And what they mean by that uh, is, uh, is mass killing and annihilation. Mm-hmm. So, so you come down clearly on, on, in the argument that, that American policy was not aimed to physically destroy uh, the native population. Um, but I, as I read your book, it seems fairly clear that at least much of the American population sees the eventual destiny, if things go right, of the Indians as assimilating into American cultures and structures. Uh, and you talk a little bit at the beginning of the book about definitions of genocide and the idea of cultural genocide. So, so am I right in thinking that you would come down and say there's at least some tendency toward a genocidal, a cultural genocidal impulse yeah, I, in this? I think, I think definitely. Uh, I think definitely. If the definition in, in Raphael, Raphael Lemkin, uh, in his initial definition uh, before UN Resolution 260. Um, uh, on the prevention and punishment of uh, the crime of genocide was passed by the UN in 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, Lemkin felt that cultural genocide was a type of genocide. Yeah. It is not something that was incorporated uh, into uh, uh, Resolution 260, just like political genocide. We talked about the Soviet Union, uh, the Kulaks, for example, was not incorporated into the official, uh, the official uh, uh, definition of genocide. If one accepts uh, the, uh, the premise that there is such a thing as cultural genocide or cultural asphyxiation, I think absolutely then it would qualify. What is absolutely clear in my mind is that there was little or no room for native tribes to maintain their ethnic identities in the American project. And so the idea was, uh, and this is a, uh, a, a cultural bias then, uh, the idea was an ethnocentrism, if you will, that the tribes had to, in order to join the so-called American project, they had to change. And the only way that they could change and be successful in that project was by becoming farmers, by becoming members of this white society. Uh, and so that was, that was the stark reality uh, that, uh, uh, that they were faced with. They were faced with. And it, it does raise an interesting question uh, with respect to how we think about what, uh, what genocide is, but even more, what are the costs, uh, what were the costs of that forced assimilation, mm-hmm. uh, I think. And in the book, uh, I, I talk about a quote from uh, Wilma Mankiller, who was a principal mm-hmm. tribe of the Cherokee Nation, and she described... Uh, uh, she described the Trail of Tears as, quote-unquote, our Holocaust or the, mm-hmm. or, or the Cherokee Holocaust. And clearly from a Native American perspective, right, I think that it's very clear that to see the events that happened to specific, uh, specific tribes and this, this process of forced assimilation uh, from their perspective would very much uh, uh, fit into that, uh, into that overall paradigm of genocide. So, so for and, and just as an aside for listeners who are new to the program, uh, if you're interested in this subject, uh, I interviewed Andrew Wolford 
oh, a year or so ago about his books about the residential schools. Uh, and so you can go back at the website and, and, and look at that. Um, so, so we're nearing the end of our time. I, I'd like you to do kind of a two or three kind of broader comparisons. And, and the first is to say, um, looking at both cases and rhetoric, and I know this is kind of vastly oversimplifying, but in, in one of your case studies, the Nazis used exterminatory rhetoric and meant it. In the American case study, you get a lot of rhetoric about annihilation and extermination, but the behavior on the ground doesn't necessarily and often doesn't actually live up to that kind of rhetoric. So how, how do you go about evaluating that kind of rhetorical extremism? Well, I think what you have to look at is, uh, and this is where the comparison itself, in a totalitarian regime, if the rhetoric is coming from the top, mm. then it has its ability to, and it's being supported by a state, uh, by an, a state apparatus, it can in fact be transformed into action. But what we see uh, in the American West, uh, in my mind, is there's multiple, this is that center, it's not only the center versus periphery, but there's multiple centers of power and checks uh, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the U.S. East, whether it's Congress, whether it's Indian mm -hmm. agents themselves, in some cases, uh, Army, uh, U.S. Army units uh, that are on the ground and can prevent uh, uh, rhetoric from being turned into actual reality. And so I think what you uh, what you what you see with rhetoric is when uh, the institutions um, when the institutions can be aligned in pursuit of a common goal yeah. that's when it becomes uh, that's when it becomes most dangerous and most feasible. I would say that that was actually my next question to ask you to revisit that issue of center and periphery and and one of the challenges of course in this is is assessing is that it ha assessing this as it happens. Um, and evaluating in, in a kind of complicated media environment, trying to figure out what's happening, for instance, in Syria or the Sudan, and kind of making those assessments. Well, and you know, and you're right. And the other thing, it comes to political will, right? And I mean, yeah. we see this, we see this, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, news from the, uh, uh, the U.S. West back to the East, um, it takes time in the 19th yeah. century, right? Uh, and uh, for me, one of the interesting uh, uh, anecdotes or interesting uh, uh, stories that I had is after the uh, Battle of Little Bighorn uh, and Custer's force mm -hmm. is annihilated, you have the 5th Cavalry, and, and they're watching uh, in the Nebraska Territory as, uh, as a group of Cheyenne, a thousand Cheyenne, are, are leaving to go join Sitting Bull and uh, Crazy Horse's forces literally about a month after the massacre. And the 5th Army is strung out and with uh, orders to prevent them from, uh, from leaving and force them back to the reservation. And in my mind, uh, this is a case where you would think that that's a, uh, that's a perfect situation for a genocidal kind of massacre of those, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the Army's angry about what happened. Uh, here you have this long trail of uh, men, women, and children uh, that are leaving the mm -hmm. reservation, and in fact, what it what it what it leads to is literally uh, forcing them back to the reservation mm -hmm. with uh, uh, with one casualty, as I uh, I talk about in the book. But uh, the point uh, the, the the point uh, there seems to me again that again we see that uh, in this case there are there are other factors that influence uh, influence actions yeah. on the ground. 
uh, and uh, in Nazi Germany, all those factors from the top down to the bottom are aimed at annihilation, essentially. Yeah. And that's what uh, that's what really uh, becomes a defining difference. Yeah, and so you started this by by talking about the Hitler's reference um, and, and Karl May and this, this sense in which Hitler was at least aware of the wars against the Indians. He, he makes similar contact con, um, uh, comments. Um, the exact comment, uh, the the wording of them is, is is not entirely sure, but he at least refers to Armenia. Talks about well, nobody really cared about Armenians. I guess I can do what I want. How much does do you think these kind of historical examples really mattered in terms of outlining his his act or determining his actions? You know, the this I guess for me what was interesting was you think about what people imagine. What mm -hmm. it's less it's less of what's true in many cases as what people believe is true. And so if Hitler believed uh, that uh, that the American West was conquered by millions, literally, of, uh, uh, of Indians being shot down, as he talked about, or that the world uh, uh, was not concerned about the Armenian genocide. I think it tells us less about those historical events than how Hitler himself envisioned what he could do in the mm -hmm. East and what he felt he could get away with uh, in the East. So it, it tells you more about Hitler, I think, uh, in this case, than it does about U.S. history. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, but that to me is the important part. If he could imagine that happening that way, then that in his mind could serve as the template for his own actions in the East. Well, I, I, I've used a lot of your time, uh, and, and I want to say thanks so much for your time. For, for the listeners who are interested in pursuing it, the book's got lots of good information. It's very interesting, and, and Ed writes really well, so it reads reads quickly. Um just as a way of concluding, um, I think I'm trying hard not to count how many days left I have on break because it's just discouraging. Um, but I got a few. Uh, and I always ask guests to suggest a book or two they've read or a movie they've watched. Um, what should I read this weekend before I turn my attention to syllabi? Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'd give you, uh, I'd give you uh, uh, several. I, I yeah. talked about Brian DeLay's War of a Thousand Deserts, which is uh, published by Yale which is a mm -hmm. fantastic look uh, at uh, the Comanche Empire and what mm -hmm. happens to northern Mexico uh, uh, as a result of uh, Comanche martial strength. Uh, another book that I, I came across that is fascinating to me was Kevin Mulroy's Freedom on the Border. And huh. It deals with escaped uh, slaves who, uh, who go into uh, Florida and they become part of the Seminole tribe, uh, the so-called Seminole Maroons, who then during removal go into the Indian Territory, today's Oklahoma, who are then contracted by the Mexican government to come into northern Mexico and serve as a bulwark against Indian raiding, because they themselves <laughs> understand it, who then migrate into Texas and become oh, scouts for the uh, U.S. Army. And when we talk about identity, uh, uh -huh. identity and how it's changed and how it's negotiated, uh, to me, uh, that's uh, that's fascinating. Uh, on the German side, I think Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, which looks yeah. um, which looks at Eastern Europe from a Soviet perspective uh, and what happens uh, during the Soviet period and the Nazi period, is interesting because one of the things that I have found most interesting is this whole idea of borderlands and borderlands yeah. history, because the borderlands aren't only in the Southwest 
they're also in Eastern Europe. They are mm -hmm. around the world. And how these borderlands histories, how peoples and civilizations come into con uh, contact and conflict, to me is a fascinating uh, is a fascinating part. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, and we're out of time now. But I will just say for listeners, Ed has some really interesting things to say about that in his book, and it's well worth well worth looking at. Uh, I will. Um, I'm not sure I can quite manage three books over the next three days, but I, I will give it a shot. Um, if my wife ends up hating me, I'll blame you. Um, last question is one I always ask. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, well, my new project focuses on the role of alcohol in atrocity. So I've, mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at uh, how alcohol was used. Uh, and I started with the Holocaust and, and looking at uh, both German, uh, German uh, units to include military and paramilitary SS and police. But um, if we look at, for example, Rwanda, uh, yeah. uh, alcohol, uh, machete season, uh, uh, Jan, uh, Jan Hatfeld's machete season talks about uh, these cabarets, the sites of planning, celebration, mm -hmm. drinking. Uh, to me, um, this is a fascinating uh, topic that incorporates not only historical, but also sociological, psychological uh, uh, studies, uh, masculinity studies uh, yeah. in, in, in some parts. Uh, are, are part of this, and so I'm fascinated at looking at this interrelationship between how alcohol and its use can also be uh, tied uh, to functions of a mass atrocity. Interesting. Yeah, this is a timely topic. There's this um, new book that this German author has written, whose name I'm not remembering, about the drug use. And I think the headline of this is Hitler's drug use, but what I thought was more interesting was the drug use in the Wehrmacht. Yeah. So... Well, it sounds like a great project, and I hope when you're done, you'll come back on the show to talk about it. Um, but I want to say thanks again for having, uh, uh, having time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Kelly. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to an interview with Edward Westerman about his new book, Hitler's Ostkrieg and the Indian Wars, Comparing Genocide and Conquest, published by the University of Oklahoma Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll interview Rebecca Jinks about her book, Representing Genocide, The Holocaust is Paradigm. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.